Before we start this episode of Conversations with Kenyatta, I'm excited to tell you about my new partnership with Audible. Listeners can go to www.audibletrial.com backslash Kenyatta to receive a free 30-day trial. Audible is a wonderful resource with audiobooks for every reader. It even has titles from authors that have been on my podcast, such as Dr. Dan Bouts' Democracy's Data and Gail Lukasik's White Like Her. And please note that this is an affiliate link. So I may receive a commission with no cost to you, just a fee trial with so many wonderful titles. And I love to read. But with that, here's this week's episode of Conversations with Kenyatta. Welcome to episode 12 of Conversations with Kenyatta. I'm delighted to have Bernice Bennett with me today, a friend, a colleague, and a mentor. I am so excited that she agreed to join us today to share her wisdom and her knowledge in all things genealogy. So welcome, Bernice. I appreciate you uh, chatting with me today. And I want to know, although I've known you for quite some time, (laughs) and I've been on your podcast and been interviewed by you uh, at Rootstech as well. That's um, right. Yes, yes. So what prompted your interest in genealogy? Well, I'm going to take you really back, (laughs) back to a time when I was teaching at Johns Hopkins. And one of the anthropology instructors approached me and said, you know, Bernice, we want to know a little bit more about Black history. So could you come in and talk to our class about your family history? And so I reached out to my know-it-all mother. The woman knows everything. And so I said, look, Mom, I, I really need you to give me some information about the family history. And so she did. She wrote things for me, and she sent pictures, which gave me an opportunity to put together a poster display of the family. And I had pictures on my paternal side and my maternal side. But that was one piece of what kind of triggered me into uh, genealogy. The other is that I grew up in New Orleans around Mm. a very large extended family. And when you grow up around an extended family, you're going to know granddaddy. You're going to know grandpa, which is different. You're going to know grandmother and great-grandmother and the grandmother's siblings and all of the cousins. And so for that, I said, well, I really have a lot of information on my mother's family. At least I thought I did, Mm -hmm. but not as much as I wanted on my father's side, which he is from South Carolina, from Mm -hmm. a place called 96, of which I never visited. And so having the Louisiana side and not the South Carolina side was the trigger that got me really into genealogy. You have to know both sides. You can't just go around life only knowing one side of your family history. Yeah, that's very, very true. It's interesting that you mentioned, uh, what did you say, 96? Because I was like, I've never heard of it either. Well, I never Um, heard of it either. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm sure it's pretty small. So you've done your genealogy for a number of years. And at what point did you decide you wanted to do this professionally? Well, I retired in 2009 
after working in the field of public health for over 35 years. And although, as I said, I had my family history, I just decided it was time for me to just move into another direction. And genealogy was that area for me. It's, you know, over 35 years, obviously, I was reinventing myself maybe every five years because I was really changing jobs and going to different places, even working in international health for 10 years. But leaving the field, in two, the public health field in 2009, really opened the door for me to do what I love doing. <laughs> And I want to say, love it. And so that told me, okay, I could get into an area where I enjoy coaching, where I enjoyed retrieving records, where I enjoyed speaking. And genealogy gave me that opportunity. So that's, that's when I decided to become a professional genealogist. Yeah, I agree with you. Genealogy does give you opportunity to explore a lot of things, especially if you love it, right? It's not really like it's work for you. It's like every day is a new adventure of discovery. Absolutely. And that's one of the things I love about it. But I mentioned at the top of our conversation that you've interviewed me. And so you host a show uh, called Research at the National Archives and Beyond on Blog Talk Radio. So in all the things that you do, what made you decide once you retired or pursued genealogy full time that you wanted to host a show? Well, Kenyatta, there's always a beginning, right? I was invited to be on a show called Nurturing Our Roots. And Antoinette Harrell hosted that show. She's from Louisiana. She's done a great deal of research and peonage research but she invited me and I went on her show and I talked about researching and finding documents at the National Archives, something that a lot of the folks in Louisiana really hadn't done, but the National Archives was right down the street from my old job. So I spent a lot of time there. Anyway, to make a long story short, Antoinette was at the point where she was thinking of retiring her blog talk radio show. And she suggested that maybe I might want to host my own show. And so she opened the door for me to talk on her show, to try it out, to see if I liked it. Well, it's 10 years later now and I'm still doing it. And so that was kind of the impetus for me. And I have to tell you, I have enjoyed hosting the show. I mm. called myself retiring the show last year. But then when the pandemic hit, I said, oh, no, I have to go back on and bring more people on. We need to talk. We have to stay connected in some kind of way. So I brought the show back on. But this is it. I am really retiring the show now. <laughs> but I've enjoyed it. Yeah, I've enjoyed it too, uh, listening to a lot of the episodes and the guests that you had on when I was on Genealogy Roadshow as well. Um, but what are some of your most memorable moments from the show? Since you're retiring the show, you know, this year, are there two or three things or episodes that kind of stand out? Well, I have to say my very first episode was with Melvin Collier. 
And I enjoyed having Melvin because Melvin came on talking about uh, his from 150 years, you know, the book that he wrote, you know, from Mississippi Mm -hmm. to Africa. And it was just so engaging and so wonderful to hear him go through his journey. And so some of those shows that really stood out for me, one of them was called Fathers of Conscience. And I don't know if you even had an opportunity to listen to this show, but I had this uh, guest on my show and she did research to find out, well, what would happen if a white person fathered a black child and this person wanted to leave something for that child? what would happen? And so she did the research on this. And that was the most fascinating show that I have had, not to mention a show called Freedom Papers. And Mm. so what I brought in lots of authors, one, oh my goodness, my sister even told me she had nightmares after listening to the show. But the research was just amazing. And it was called The Price for Their Pound of Flesh. Mm-hmm. Yep. When she finished talking about that show, we all had to take a fan and say, what? You know, when you think of an enslaved person, that they are price before birth to death. And it's called The Price of Their Pound of Flesh. And uh, my guest was Dana Ramey Berry. If you've had a chance to talk to her. I also had a show called The Black Russian. Do you recall that show? Oh, my God. No, I do. Vladimir (laughs) Alexandrov talked about this man who was born in Mississippi and who ended up in Russia. And we went through this whole story. So I have had just so many memorable shows. You know, I'm talking 10 years. Yeah, yeah. 10 years is a lot of people and it's history, it's genealogy, it's everyday people talking about connecting with ancestral roots. And so, I mean, I'm not going to say any show didn't stand out. They all stood out as far as I'm concerned. Well, I mean, now, of course, um, I'm going to have to go back and look for those. And for the listeners, even though you're retiring the show, can we still go back and listen to those episodes today? Every single show is now a podcast and syndicated everywhere. So, yes, they can find the show. Awesome. Okay. Yes. I will definitely be doing that because you piqued my my interest. And Dr. Barry was actually, she was one of our on-screen or on-camera, I should say, historians for episode one of Genealogy Roadshow in Austin. However, yes. it didn't make the cut, but she was there and I met her there. And also she did a, um, I think it was a couple of years ago when her book first came out, mm-hmm. she did an event in LA. And so I went to see her. So I have the book and it, it is definitely kind of mind boggling yet. You just don't, I don't know, you just walk away. I, I didn't know how to feel. There were so many different emotions yes, attached yes. to that. It's one of those shake your head, you know, oh my God. Yes. Yes, one of your shake your head moments. I call them sort of the ones where I slam down the laptop and walk away. Yes, yes, yes. That's the best way to do it. I need a moment. Well, let's switch gears uh, because I want to talk about your books. Um, You've won numerous awards um, for both of your books. But for your first book, Our Ancestors, Our Stories, 
Um, and that was co-authored by Harris M. Bailey Jr., Ethel Daly, Ellen LaVon Butler, and Vincent Shepard. And this book won the 2018 International Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society, or OGS as we know it, Book Award for Nonfiction Short Stories. So tell a little bit about the book, you know, how you guys started that, the collaboration, and also you call yourselves memory keepers. So I want to know what is a memory keeper? Okay, so let me start off with the book and how we started. All of us discovered that we had ancestral roots in Edgefield, South Carolina. As I mentioned earlier, I wanted to know more about my father's side of the family and discovered the connection to Edgefield. Uh, not only for me, but for the others, we all connected at the Southern Studies Showcase, which was held in Edgeville. And as you could imagine, walking into the door, you're seeing African-Americans. Well, what are you doing? What is your research? We started sharing our stories with each other. And it got to a point in time, and it was many others that we were sharing with, we decided maybe we should stop just talking about our stories and start writing our stories. And so that's where the collaboration took place. Of course, we had someone to provide us with a great deal of support, and that was Anita Henderson of mm -hmm. The Right Image. And she provided the dream team. She offered coaching for those who had never written a book, to help them understand how to organize their writing. She also worked with us to form the level of commitment that we needed to, because you can't agree to write a book if there's not the commitment of which individuals will have to say, yes, I will write, this is on the dotted line. I will uh, meet the various uh, deadlines. I will agree to provide the financial support because no book is written free. And so this is what happened with us. We came together. Each of us had our own unique short stories. We also had a historian that was part of this process to give the context of what we were writing about. And then we each went in our own direction within our heads and we started writing. And so this is what the book turned out to be, Our Ancestors our stories and we decided that we wanted our name to be called the memory keepers is because to us we will never let the memories of our families go to the grave without us sharing those stories we we really feel that keepers is what we should be you have to keep the individuals in your life so that you honor the past and you preserve the stories for the future. And so this is how we came up with calling ourselves the memory keepers. Well, that's great. I mean, I really love that because it is it is about when we're doing this work in genealogy, a lot of times we get caught up in the names, dates, and places, right? And we forget to tell the stories. We forget to actually document in a different way um, our ancestors to bring them to life. One of the things that is funny when you mentioned the name that struck me was Harris M. Bailey Jr. And the reason why is one of my very, very dear friends 
her second great grandfather was Paris Simpkins from Edgefield. Yes, yes. Yes. And so I have done a ton of research on Paris Simpkins. And so when I saw the Bailey name, immediately I went to her tree to look. And she's in Cambridge. So I'll have to tell her about our conversation. But uh, that's my only connection to Edgefield is doing the research for her on the Simpkins side of her family. And Paris has a great story. And I've talked about him a little bit before. But when I saw that, I was pleasantly surprised and delighted So uh, to see that. But one other question about uh, this book. You talked about the commitment and being memory keepers and both financial and time and all of that and support you received. Um, what was it like collaborating with other folks? I know you went off to your own kind of corner, so to speak, to write, and then you came back together. So how did you kind of decide, you know, the order of the book, the length of the chapters, all of the work that comes in when you have other people, you know, to, to work with and deal with and personalities and everything. Well, first of all, the, the word that everyone needs to understand when you're talking about collaboration is group dynamics. Okay. And so, <laughs> you know, group dynamics and ground rules and how are you going to communicate with each other? Uh, certainly the the need to go through this whole, what you call the, the typical team building process of mm-hmm. storming, <laughs> performing, uh, norming. So yes, we went through the storming phase because we had to talk about, well, what would the theme be? What would our focus be? How would we write our stories? Would our stories come out looking like something that you would write for the NGS quarterly? Or would our stories be more personal with emotions, with ups and downs? How do we want to tell our story? So we each had to talk about that, even to the point of how would we even document the resources we use? We talked Mm. about that too. So team building is important. Group consensus is important. So we got together and talked about, well, how many words would each of us write? Mm -hmm. And came up with 5,000 words each for each person. Then we talked about, well, what about images? How many images did we want? I mean, all of that had to be uh, discussed and we negotiated with each other. And we, we felt good about what we were doing. But again, it is a process. And you always have to have somebody in the role of team leader. You're going to always have somebody in the role of um, what you would call, maybe this is the person that's going to calm people down. <laughs> the, 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 re- the person with the reason. But in the end... We all came together for a mutual goal, and that was we wanted to share our story. We agreed to what our cover would look like. We agreed to what our back matter would look like. We agreed to who would write the foreword, who would write the introduction, who would write the history and the epilogue. All of that, Kenyatta, was part of our process, but it worked. Because we ended up with a book, and I have to thank Anita Henderson because she helped us put it all together. That's great. You you had a guide that was sort of outside of the part of the process, but not necessarily first one of the the co-authors, right? So able to kind Correct. of I would say be the, the diplomat, maybe the peacekeeper, however the words you want to use to describe folks that are that are in a group. Um, so after that, 
uh, you decided or you've written your second book, which is Tracing Their Steps, a memoir. And this book has also won some book awards. And that is the 2019 Phyllis Wheatley Literary Award from the Sons and Daughters of the U.S. Middle Passage. And then you also recently won an Indie Book Award. So tell us more about your second book or tell us about your second book and who is Peter Clark? Okay, so my second book is is a memoir. And it's a memoir based upon oral history shared by my grandmother. And my grandmother told me that her grandfather, Peter Clark, owned a lot of land. Now, when given that information, I had to say, where is the land? When did he get the land? Tell me more. And to get more, I had to research. I had to find it. So my intent was to give people an opportunity to watch me or to read about how I went through the process of verifying the oral history given to me by my grandmother. By the way, she's 100 years old. She lived to be almost 106. And I was able to connect the, I mean, the lady was right on target. She knew what she was talking about. And every time I would verify something, I would do a happy dance because I was so excited to actually say that I had a primary source to tell me something. She lived in the house with him in 1900. There she was in the household with her grandfather. I mean, what else can you ask for? Here's this lady telling me this. And I remember going to my grandmother because one of my friends said to me, "Uh, did your grandmother know any slaves? And so I went to my grandmother and I said, did you know any people who were enslaved and she looked at me and she said no it wasn't just no no (laughs) no way (laughs) she wasn't hearing it she wanted to talk about her granddaddy in this land Mm -hmm. and what I discovered with this land was that my great great grandfather acquired this land under the Homestead Act of 1862. The man obtained 159.33 acres of land in 1896. Now, exciting. It was just one of those stories. And of course, as I went through tracing their steps, I had my mother I had my mother, she she lived to be 95, helping me along the way because she understood, she listened to me talk enough about genealogy that I needed evidence and she was there to give me what I needed to call people up, to search for stuff, to tell me, oh no, you have to go to the place. You have to take this trip. You have to see where it is located. You're not going to spend all of that time looking in documents without going to the place. And so I shared with everyone what it was like in tracing their steps. And in tracing your steps in the, in the memoir, sort of what are some of the most, I guess, kind of shocking things or one of the shocking things you might have learned, not giving it away so that folks will buy the book if they haven't already. But one of the most shocking things you learned on this journey. And also, I wanted you to talk a little bit about Peter Clark's journey in the Florida parishes of Louisiana. Because I don't think people, including myself, kind of I just really learned about this, understand what the Florida parishes of Louisiana are, like where they're located. But I would love to hear more about that. 
and, right. and sort of your journey. Right. For for those of you who don't know, I mean, if you think of New Orleans, Louisiana as the boot, and mm-hmm. you look at New Orleans as being like in the toe, somewhere down there, where the Florida parish is, it used to be a part of Florida, Spanish Florida. And when you think about the Louisiana Purchase and all of the different things that happen with Louisiana, though there are certain places that are called the Florida parishes, which includes Livingston Parish, uh, St. Helena Parish, places like Hammond, East Baton Rouge. Those are part of the Florida parishes. And so Peter Clark was born in 1855 in St. Helena Parish. And when you talk about, well, what did I discover? Well, I never expected to, but found Peter Clark, his mother, and his siblings on a Freedman Bureau's record in 1868. I was looking for him. I could not find him in 1870. But going to 1868, there he was, Peter Clark, on this document listing him and those siblings and now i have my third great grandmother's name katie the interesting thing though kenyatta and i know you said i'm not going to give it all away is that his name was not listed in the 1870 census as clark Mm. it was another surname and so you one of the things we have to do sometimes is think out of the box suppose i just look for first names and not last names, but go in the same community. And there he was Mm. with the brother, Mm -hmm. the sister. And the exciting thing that I discovered was a marriage license that his sister uh, had when she got married. I found his marriage license. I found, and I'm calling them license, but really they're marriage bonds because Mm -hmm. I also spent time in the courthouses the courthouse in St. Helena Parish and the courthouse in Livingston Parish because there was a boundary change. And when you start doing your research and you start noticing, wait a minute, they're supposed to be in St. Helena, but now they're in Livingston, you have to also go back and study the history to understand that maybe they're still in the same place, maybe they move, but there are boundary changes. So I went to two courthouses. And with those courthouses, I did find the most exciting information, and that was the marriage bonds. Finding my great-great-grandfather, Peter, marriage bond to Rebecca Youngblood, then finding her parents and their marriage bond. So I now have my third great-grandparents information just because I listened to what my grandmother told me. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think you bring up a lot of excellent points. I mean, one in listening to your grandmother. Right. And not taking that as, you know, a lot of times I think or previously people took oral history as something to be dismissive. Right. It's just a story in your family. But you listen to your grandmother. You use that as a foundation in your research. And then as you found the documents to prove that and the evidence, as you said, she was right on point. And along the way in doing this research, you discovered or you you talk about the name change, right? Which is something people don't think about, the surname change, as well as the boundaries within the parishes and or the counties and how you need to actually know your history and know that information. And that's those are a lot of good nuggets for anyone who's doing research 
across the board, but definitely for African-American research. And of course, the Freedmen's Bureau records um, are always a good resource. But I want to ask you kind of how long did it take? And it was kind of a loaded question, but how long did it take? Because as you were talking, I'm thinking, you know, was this 10 years, 20 years to get to this point where you were able to say, okay, now I'm going to put this in the book. Now I'm going to write this memoir. 15 years. Okay. Wow. Yes. Yes. I mean, I was... I was at that point where I was just gathering and gathering and gathering. And I had to stop and say, wait a minute, I need to write this story. Mm -hmm. I need to tell it. I mean, there may be more that I uncover, but you know, you get to this point where you have to stop researching and you Mm -hmm. just have to take inventory of what do I have and what do I want others to know and understand? And that's when I decided, okay, it's time. And I was part of this writing group, back to Anita with the writing group. And she would give us prompts. And each prompt, you write a little story. And I just started writing and writing and writing until I had what I wanted. And I said it the way I wanted it to be understood. I wanted a story. Mm. And... I think that's great. I agree as genealogists, we tend to love, we love the research part to stop, to be able to stop the research and start writing the story is a bit of a challenge. I mean, I know I have that issue with my, with what I'm writing for my second book, but one, I want to get to sort of what advice would you give genealogists or people who are researching their family history? Um, and, and they want to write a book, maybe not a memoir, but they want to tell their story. And maybe it's not a book, but an essay. Like, what advice would you give them? And they may not be able to have the opportunity to have a mentor or have someone, Anita, help them out. So where should they start? What should be their kind of goals um, so that they have something tangible to share with their family or with others? First of all, write what you know. <laughs> <laughs> Don't try to be what you're not. If you're not a historian, don't try to write like a historian. Write what you know. The second is put down in an outline form what you want to say. For me, it was helpful to just outline where I wanted to go with my book. Also, provide the documentation to support your story. And also share your emotions. What did it feel like? Make it feel like a story and write the kind of story that you like to read. Mm. I know I have a tendency, I love to read short stories, but Mm. I like stories that capture me and make me read them to the end. I don't like to read stories that start off and start going in millions of directions. And it makes me uh, just say, okay, I'm done. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I would just say, write the kind of story that you like to read, read a lot. And this is just advice that I would give to anybody to write. You must read a lot to understand how you want to direct people and then take folks on a journey. And it doesn't have to be a memoir, but you have different aspects of a story. You want to at least give them a little idea of what they're getting into Mm -hmm. and then put them in different scenarios so that when you end, 
people will say, oh, wow, I learned from that. Oh, that mm -hmm. inspired me, if that's what you want to do. But mm -hmm. at least at least know where you want to go with your story and write what you know. Mm -hmm. That's great advice. So kind of, um, and I like, don't try, if you're not a historian, don't try to write like a historian. <laughs> and then having an end in mind, right? Where where does this end up? Where Where am I leading my reader? That's excellent advice. So where can listeners buy both of your books, Our Ancestors, Our Stories, and Tracing Their Steps, a memoir? Both books are on Amazon.com. Mm -hmm. And they can also, if they want a signed copy, they can contact me directly by going to my website, www.JeannieBRoots.com. And on the first page, they'll see my book and they'll see the links to connect with me. So my last question for you, well, last two kind of questions. Uh, one is sort of what's next for you? And are you writing another book? Well, what's next for me right now, because I mentioned to you my ancestor was a homesteader. Mm -hmm. My next is that I'm really, really, really pushing for African-Americans to identify their ancestors that own land and mm -hmm. also to tell their stories. And so I set up a Facebook page called Descendants of Black Homesteaders or Descendants of African-American Homesteaders. And these descendants are encouraged. I've given them a template on how to write their stories. I've shown them how to find the land and also we are in a wonderful position because the Homestead Historical Park Service site is allowing us to put our stories on that site. And so I set oh, wow. a goal to have 50, 50 stories by the end of August. And Kenyatta, I am so proud of the descendants that are submitting their stories. And what I have said to them, when you see a land pattern on your ancestor, that's the end of the process. I want mm -hmm. you to go to the beginning of the process. And the beginning is to get a copy of the land entry papers that are available at the National Archives. And so for those individuals that identify their land-owning ancestors, and I want to make it clear that we're not talking about the 13 original colonies or Texas, but we're talking about all the other states. So we now have stories from Michigan, Louisiana, Mississippi, Arkansas, Florida, just received one from Kansas, and I am just so excited for those descendants. And so that's kind of my mission right now. Mm -hmm. I am enjoying it. I'm encouraging people to tell their stories. There is a project called the Black Homesteaders of the Great Plains, but we're going beyond the Great Plains. But who knows how many descendants I will encounter. I want to jump in real quick because I actually want to be a part of this group because I have a... Uh, a homesteader out of uh, Arizona. And, oh, all right. Um, yes, yes. And I actually do have the papers from the National Archives. Uh, in, so so I will be part of that. And I do think I have another, um, and that's on my mom's side of the family. 
And I have a cousin, it's more, it's her direct ancestor. He's kind of adjacent to me, but, and she's writing a story about him. And then I also have possibly uh, Arkansas as well. So I'm definitely going to. Okay. Oh, I am so excited. I am so excited. I celebrate. And anybody, those folks who know me, as soon as a story is submitted, I immediately send out a message to congratulate that descendant. And the stories are posted all over the Facebook pages of AfroGenius, Our Black Ancestry, the Midwest African American Genealogy Institute, mm-hmm. so that others can be inspired by what these individuals are saying about their families. So, Kenyatta, I look forward to seeing yes. your stories a part of this whole process. Thank you. Wonderful. Yes. Yeah, I'm excited. When you said that, I was like, oh, I'm thinking of his name was, um, I think it was Lewis Walter Bentley or Walter Lewis Bentley. His son had kind of the same name, but switched, flipped. But yeah, it's uh, definitely one of those things I will uh, follow up on. Wonderful. So that, that is your your passion. And I will tell my cousin Judy about it as well uh, to okay, let her know. Okay, great. Wonderful. Yeah, I'm excited. So this and and the work you're doing and you're very passionate about it. Uh, as you go through this process, do you think that you'll write another book on the other end of this or you'll discover something that inspires you to maybe write a book or you may have something in mind already? You know what? I'm already inspired. I want to <laughs> get a new book out and it's going to be on the Black Homesteaders. Yes. Mm, okay. Good. Good. I'm glad. Yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, I, I really appreciate you, you know, taking the time today. I always enjoy our conversations and just learn a lot every time I chat with you and I'm inspired to actually, once we get done to pull up, pull up my binder, <laughs> look through <laughs> the application and make sure I have all my information correct. But I think I do. Uh, I did not expect to even bring him up today or even talk about, even though I knew it was the homesteader thing, I didn't really know that you were doing this pro- uh, this project. So that gives me motivation to actually do more research on my own family, which as we know, sometimes when we're doing work for other people or speaking, we don't have a lot of time to research our own family. So this kind of gives me that motivation uh, to do so and continue with their stories. Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm just excited for you and just enjoy it. You know, you have so many wonderful people to talk to and thank you so much for inviting me. No, thank you. Conversations with Kenyatta is produced by Kenyatta D. Berry and Caitlin Owl and features Kenyatta D. Berry. The music for this episode was Good Vibe by Ketza. Follow Kenyatta on Instagram under the handle Kenyatta.Berry, on Facebook at facebook.com slash KenyattaDB, and on Twitter at KenyattaDB. You can also find more information on her book and upcoming events on her website at KenyattaBerry.com.